Is there some task you find yourself performing frequently, repetitively on the web? With Python and modern tooling, virtually every website and every web application has become easily scriptable. I'm not talking about web scraping. I'm referring to Selenium, which is a headless Python front-end for the full version of the Chrome browser. Join me and Tim Grossman as we talk about Selenium and how to automate the web. You'll learn about his project, Instapy, which is a full Python package for automating almost anything involving Instagram. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 142, recorded December 5th, 2017. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on... Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Linode and GoCD. Be sure to check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Tim, welcome to Talk Python. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. You have a, a pretty cool project, and it's really leveraging some technology that I haven't done that much with, with Selenium. And we're going to talk about basically automating websites with Selenium and then your package, which well, packages it all up, into automating Instagram and Instapy, which is, is really, really fun. So I'm looking forward to talking about this, sort of getting the web data where there is no API or where you don't want to use the API. Yeah, well, I'm excited as well to talk about Instapy and, and how I did it and kind of the underlying technology. It'll be really fun. So before we get into that, though, let's hear your story. How did you get into programming and into Python? Well, at least for me, these are kind of two different starting points because I got into programming while doing my bachelor's degree in arts. And my bachelor's thesis was about automating repetitive processes when it comes to using 3D art and animation tools. And that was kind of the starting point where I started to be interested in writing scripts and doing automation and writing code. Was this things like um, like the Adobe tools, like Photoshop and some of the other ones? I know a lot of the, the 3D animation software has uh, like automation pipelines that you can plug into. There was this or there is this one tool called ZBrush and film advertisement and games use it to create high detailed models of, for example, characters or any kind of organic stuff. And yet they have this internal scripting language called CScript. And with that, you can easily create GUI applications that help you, for example, color different layers in different styles easily. You would do that by yourself and it would take a lot of time. But if you have a script that does it for you and you have a nice like a GUI that you can use to color everything the way you want to. It saves you a lot of time in the long run. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really cool. So that got you into programming in this funky language called CScript, which I've never heard of. <laughs> what, what was it like? Really interesting. The, when you first start out with, with such a thing and it's the first language you get into, it's kind of, kind of hard. And it actually was a programming language or a scripting language more like where there wasn't a lot of documentation. So it was a pretty niche language and it was kind of hard to get in and kind of hard to keep track of. But once you get down the foundations, it's really awesome and it's really interesting to build stuff with it because there's a huge community behind ZBrush who are all just artists. But if you're into scripting as well, you can create tools that not only help you get your workflow improve, but also help, help a lot of other people. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really nice that there's that community. It's probably not quite the same as being able to go to Stack Overflow and look how to like do some like double loop list comprehension <laughs> yeah. thing really quickly, right? <laughs> the resources are a little thinner, I would guess, but still very cool. All right. So, uh, you know, one of the areas that I know in this whole space that has a lot of Python is Blender and the 3D stuff that they got going on there. That's, that's pretty interesting. So how did you go from CScript into Python? Python was actually introduced pretty lately in my studies. So after finishing my bachelor's degree in arts, I kind of was really interested in getting into programming. And so I started another bachelor's degree, which is computer science right now, and I'm still studying it. And quite a half a year, two year ago, we had this lecture called data mining. And as most of the Python users probably know it, that Python is one of the most used languages 
for data analytics, data science, and all these data wrangling kind of tasks where you use pandas and TensorFlow, depending on what you do. So I had to prepare for this lecture a little bit because I didn't want to go in there without having any kind of knowledge in Python. And so I really got introduced or I introduced myself into this Python field. I had learned Java before and JavaScript. So I kind of knew a little bit about the basics and the foundations. So it was not too hard to get into it. And a lot of people probably know, or all the listeners probably know that Python is just a really nice language that looks like it's written how you would do it initially. So it's kind of like you say it, you can sometimes write it down and it's pretty easy <laughs> to get into. Yeah, it's, it's really lovely in that way. There's a great cartoon that was going around a meme on, I don't know where it was, maybe Instagram, maybe maybe <laughs> on Twitter. It was a picture of these these people standing around some description on paper and it had it said pseudocode and, it, and it, it said we need to convert this pseudocode into Python. And so then the next picture in the cartoon is they just put dot py <laughs> on the end of the pseudocode. Nice. <laughs> and it's kind of like that, right? It's like this is the way you would naturally describe it. And then oh yeah, that's actually how it works. Just run that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So you said that you got your degree in art, and now you're working on a computer science, and actually. You come from Stuttgart, where a lot of listeners know I spent some time there as well, but neither of us are in Stuttgart right now. We're both on the West Coast in the U.S., so you're actually doing something pretty exciting as a sort of a, a, a little time away from your studies, in a sense, or applied studies. Yes, exactly. I'm currently sitting kind of in the heart of the Silicon Valley, and it was one of my biggest goals while studying to get involved in this area and get a, maybe an internship in the Silicon Valley area. And right now I'm sitting in Palo Alto, where I'm doing an internship at Bosch in the field of data engineering, which is kind of a subfield of data science and this, this big data field where a lot of people are currently working on. Yeah, that's really cool. Bosch is one of those companies that seems to do a little bit of everything. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I think of them as automotive parts, but it's also so many other other types of things. What kind of stuff are you doing in your internship? We have a lot of data. So we have these manufacturing lines and these manufacturing lines, they produce a ton of data for different components. So we want to have this real-time stream of data and we kind of operate on them, we transform it, we clean it up, we normalize it to make sure that the data scientists later in the pipeline have it have an easy task in operating on them and creating models out of it, creating graphs out of it, getting some better insights in general. That's really cool. I, I've never been a, really a data scientist. I've been more the programmer side of things. But I hear from the data scientists that I know that a major part of the job is actually data acquisition, normalization, cleanup. You probably use pandas and all those kinds of things a lot over there, right? Since I'm more into data engineering and less into data science itself, I'm do mostly doing Python in my free time for some private projects. And at Bosch, we you mostly use, for example, Scala and Kafka. We use Spark. And there is also, we could use Spark for Python because there is PySpark, but we all do it on the JVM and therefore we use Scala. Yeah, that's cool. Scala sounds like an interesting thing. I know there was Jython as one of the options for running Python in the JVM, but I, I kind of feel like Jython hasn't gotten a lot of attention the last, I don't know, many years. <laughs> Do you guys think about Jython at all? That's really interesting because right now I'm working on a project as well. It's also at Bosch. It's an evaluation of a third-party tool. And they have this small component, uh, this Jython component. And I wasn't really sure what it is or what it was until I got used to it. And then I had some pretty interesting task about daytime conversion. And we had this weird daytime. And it was really <laughs> nice to use Java in combination with Python and combine the forces of their daytime and date conversion libraries to create this really nice and well-structured code that does exactly what we want to do. So I think it's pretty cool to combine these and it, it runs pretty fast as well. So it's not, not too bad, even though it, it's not that popular yet. Yeah, that's awesome. I know there's some major, major companies uh, right in the area where you are, but uh, I can't name their names because how I learned about this, that use Jython as a major, major platform out there. So that's that's pretty interesting. I definitely think it makes sense if you're already mostly doing Java as a, a company or 
you know, similarly, if you're like a Microsoft.NET shop to use Python.NET or Iron Python to be able to just go, okay, well, this part is better in Python. And I know I can't fight the forces like it's trying to push back the ocean <laughs> to say we're just going to rewrite it in Python. So let's just, you know, put them together. Like you, like you said, that's cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's it was a real nice experience playing around with this Python code and seeing what it can do. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about the Instagram stuff that you've been up to. And like we said at the beginning, we'll focus on some of the foundations as well. So what are the origins of this? Like, It feels to me like it came from you know, you're going to help some companies basically automate their social media story. And there are automations out there. Like I use Buffer for the podcast, right? And I can schedule a social media message to go out to LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook at any time and like all sorts of stuff. But we're talking like, go in and comment on this post, go and like this photo, go reshare this, uh, you know, those kinds of things, right? Yeah, exactly. So the tool I built has a lot of these features you already described right now. And it's really for people who know some of the pages that are out there, these services that offer you to just pay three bucks, pay five bucks to get 100, 200 followers right away. It's really not comparable to that kind of automation, if you would name it like that. It's more in the term of, all right, I have my account and my account is about cards my account is about cats and so i want to interact with people that also have an account about cats or also used to post a lot of cat pictures and then the script or the bot however you want to call it goes to their account and for example likes one of their pictures or comments on one of their pictures and you can set that all up you can say all right i want to like but i don't want to comment and then if you want to comment, you can set comments like, all right, this is a nice cat or this is a cute looking cat. And you can also set up that you want to follow these people. So they, and if you do that, they will see you as a person, you as a profile in their news page or their notifications page. And they, of course, will check out your account as well, because this is how the whole Instagram social networking thing works nowadays. And that will make them attracted to your page. And maybe if they see that you post similar stuff to, the, to them, they will just follow you or like your stuff and comment on your stuff naturally because they really don't know that it's a bot or that it's kind of a automation behind it. That's for sure. I, I feel like there are these services that you can go out there and kind of get social media followers or, or whatever. And they've always seemed so empty and shallow to me right like it seems like the real way to get meaningful people that will care what you say and interact with you is to interact with them right i mean it's just human nature absolutely yeah, uh, yeah i notice these people all the time using these scripts to go and follow like the podcast or follow me personally and then three days later they'll unfollow because i didn't follow them back or you know something <laughs> like that and like you know just because you follow me that's not going to do it and you know hint to everyone listening if if uh you want me to follow you i follow almost everyone that sends me a direct message or mentions me in any way any form of real interaction i follow that person but it just you know just because something like something comes along and follows me like what's the chance it's just going to go away again in three days is, you know that's so I think these real interactions are important. And you talked about, you actually gave a talk at EuroPython, right? Yeah, exactly. It was exactly about this topic. It was not only about this InstaPy, this tool I built, but more general about how you can use Python and Selenium, which is just a front-end testing library, how you can use these in combination to create automations yourself, for example, for Instagram, if you want to do that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, one of the little stories you shared in there, which totally resonated with me with other jobs that I had, not around social media, but just this, there were people whose job was to go around, log into the client's accounts, find interesting related social media accounts and interact with them a little bit and then go away. And there's just their job was just to be that active person for hundreds of accounts, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is one thing I found out after I gave the talk and, and had some interactions with a few people that contacted me because of the project was that they told me that they have companies, they have businesses that do these kind of automations for customers, but they have one or two people sitting there. And these people, they come in 
At 8 in the morning, they sit down on their desk and have a huge list of accounts with username and password. And then they log into that account. And all they do on that day is to go through these accounts, liking, commenting, and following people on Instagram. And I just thought that was, that's just so ridiculous because, of course, you can automate this kind of stuff. <laughs> and it's, it's really hard to believe that there, there are companies that pay several people to do that if there is... There could be, for example, one guy that is working on it full time to automate this kind of stuff. Yeah, I you know I worked at some companies where there was a lot of manual stuff. It was not a company full of programmers; it was a company full of scientists, and they would they would do all these things manually. And they literally had like grad students and stuff who would just go through the data and do this repetitious stuff. And like you know, we could just write software this week to like do all of this <laughs> and without errors and right away. And they were totally terrified. They're like, you're going to get rid of our jobs. Like, no, we're going to make it so you can actually do the jobs humans are meant to do and not have to do this junk. And so then, you know, after a month they had like, they were doing like higher level, more interesting stuff. And then another round of automation, and then they were just doing more interesting things. And I kind of feel like that's that could happen here, right? Like those people who come in and sit down, instead of just like blindly following and liking stuff, they could actually be following up on the conversations triggered by the bots and stuff like that, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, pretty interesting. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Linode. Are you looking for bulletproof hosting that's fast, simple, and incredibly affordable? Look past that bookstore and check out Linode at talkpython.fm slash Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E. Plans start at just $5 a month for a dedicated server with a gig of RAM. They have 10 data centers across the globe, so no matter where you are, there's a data center near you. Whether you want to run your Python web app, host a private Git server, or a file server, you'll get native SSDs on all machines, a newly upgraded 200 gigabit network, and 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guarantee. Want a dedicated server for free for the next four months? Use the coupon code PYTHON17 at talkpython.fm slash Linode. All right, so let's let's take a step back and let's talk sort of the foundations because I think the foundational stuff is actually really interesting for people regardless of whether they care about Instagram or not. And then we could talk about how that's, the, how that's sort of led to InstaPy. So really a lot of this is based upon Selenium, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so tell everyone what Selenium is. We haven't talked about it too much on the podcast. For those who don't know, Selenium is actually a front-end testing framework. And what this means is that you create a front-end for your application. For example, it's just a simple web page. And then you use Selenium to create interaction, create a simulation that just imitates a user clicking on different buttons. It imitates a user clicking on posts of people commenting or just writing into a simple text box. Right. One of the things you can do is say, like, go to this text box and send this sequence of keys, <laughs> you know, I space like space this period, <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> so this is different from, say, like Beautiful Soup or something where you just get the HTML. This actually has like a headless Chrome Chrome the browser, and it runs that, and then you interact with Chrome through Python, right? Yeah, exactly. So for example, the first step is always to create a new browser instance. And if you don't use Chrome Headless, it will just open up a new browser window as you would do it if you would do it manually. And in there, then you can do this automation in terms of saying, all right, I want my mouse to be at this position and click that point in the graphical user interface. Yeah, and you can actually watch it, right? Exactly, yeah, you can sit there and watch your <laughs> automation doing the job for you, actually. That's pretty awesome. I'm working, look, no <laughs> And it's pretty easy to install, right? It's super easy because it's a simple Python package on PyPI, and you can just do pip install Selenium and you're ready to go. Yeah, that's really awesome. So the way to get started is you basically create an instance of Selenium, uh, you tell it to use the headless Chrome, and then you just set up a request, right? And then start interacting with it. Yeah, exactly. That's, actually, that is the full pipeline here. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Not not too hard. And so it loads up. And one of the things this is really important for is if you were to use screen scraping on any website that uses a modern Java front-end framework, you know, you might call them modern web. I'm not sure that's right, really the right term for it. But, you know, any AngularJS, Vue.js, these types of sites, what you're going to get back if you hit them with, say, request plus beautiful soup is 
a bunch of mustache curly braces where data would go if it were to run the JavaScript, right? That's one of the biggest problems when using, like you said, requests, because this content is only rendered dynamically once you enter the page. And if you just use requests, you will get the, back the skeleton of the page, but not the skeleton filled with the actual content. Right. So this basically, it's real Chrome, so it really runs all the stuff that's happening there. But you have this really nice way to interact with it. So there's a couple of ways in which you might go find things in the page. Like maybe let's take the example of logging into Instagram through Selenium, right? So give us a bit of a description, maybe the first, the like the X pathway, and we'll talk about page object later. What you have to do to make it work is you kind of look into the page HTML of the web page. So you just open up the document HTML, and then you can look into it and you can, for example, select one of the page elements. Let's say we are on the login page and we want to go into the username input box. So we just look up the XPath in the XML, in the HTML. And once we found the input box, we can then use that identifier. For example, we could use a combination of the element class, which is, for example, an input field and the class itself or an ID to get a combined query, which we can then use to uniquely identify this input box. Yeah, that's really cool. And so what you actually get back is you get an, a Python object, and then you can like send it the keys and otherwise interact with it, right? And so you could go say, find write the XPath expression to find the username and send the keys, your username, find the XPath expression for the password thing, get that object back, send it the keys, your password, and then you could actually go do the same thing for the login button, and then you can call click or other types of uh, JavaScript behaviors on it, right? Kind of the way it works, it's, and it won't get any more hard. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. The other thing that I thought was pretty cool about it was action chains. Do you want to tell us maybe about how action chains work? Action chains are kind of the same commands, but you can chain them together so you only have one execution instead of several ones. So for example, let's again take the example of just logging in a user. Before that, you would have to do to write several commands to find the element, for example, for the username and password, and then and send the keys there and click on the login button. If you use action chains, you can chain them together and put a execute command at the end, which will then trigger the whole chain to execute after all, which will also move the your mouse cursor, for example. This will create a more natural interaction than only using the simple commands. Yeah, I don't know how much of a anti-automation detection these different sites use. I know some of them, even when you're doing basic screen scraping, they won't respond to you if they think your, say, your user agent is not something like Chrome or Firefox. If they see that as like request on Python 3, they're like, uh, no, no, thank you. <laughs> the content is empty. But if you go and, you know, f spoof the header uh, for user agent, it's like, oh yeah, here's the HTML. <laughs> I, I love you, dear user, welcome. So it sounds like this might also be a little bit of a, a good thing. For that. Yeah, exactly. And especially a lot of the pages really do block you off in general. So they don't even give you an empty object. They will just maybe make sure that you won't get a response at all. And it's really hard to get dynamically rendered content on some of the big pages because they have these agreements, these license agreements that's especially state that you're not supposed to crawl the web page and this kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. There's actually, I had long, long ago, I had, um, sorry, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, I had the guy behind Scrapey on, and he actually runs web scraping as a service at scrapinghub.com. And it has like all these different servers and it, it has like all this infrastructure for dealing with these types of things, like <laughs> always come from a different IP address and all sorts of stuff. But it's definitely a, uh, a challenge to, to work with some of the, the sites, especially if they don't want you to. All right. So we've gone through this, uh, this action chain, we've logged in. And then on most of these social media sites, certainly Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, for better or worse, they've deeply embraced the idea of the infinite scroll rather than some form of paging, right? Yeah, this is 
if you want to automate this kind of stuff, it's totally annoying. <laughs> sure. So tell us, tell us what the problem is and, and how you might solve that with Selenium. If you check out the, for example, the feed, pa feed page of your Instagram profile, you will see that there's only a few posts prefetched and all the other stuff will be fetched once you reach the end of the page. This is pretty good for your for the performance of your network because you only have to get all the data that is visible right now. But if you do it with a query, then you have this this paging style where you have where you get a eight for example eight, eight posts per query and then you have to make sure you keep that paging object as well so you get more data. And with Selenium this is pretty easy because since you're an automated user you can just use a command to scroll down to the bottom of the page and scroll up again. And once the new content is loaded, you do it over and over again. This will just trigger new content to be loaded all the time, which will make sure that you have a really nice and large portion of of the web page visible. Yeah, and it has that usually has that little loading GIF at the you know little spinning loading thing at the end as it's it's loading up. So can you detect that and wait for it to go away? Or do you just give it some time and <laughs> just go to the end and just wait for five seconds? Like, okay, we probably have more. Let's try it again. What it's doing right now is it will scroll to the end of the page and then it will scroll up again and it will wait a few seconds before it will try again. And if there's no more content, we will detect that and then it will kind of try again. So it's more like a two-way security that you will actually get new content. If you don't have any network, it will just stop doing it and then and then get the content that is already there. Okay. Another one of the problems that you talked about, well, I guess there's a couple of problems. One is the obvious problem that if you're using XPath, it's super dependent on the structure of the HTML. Like it's even worse than using CSS, which already depends on the page structure, but it's like really the true structure. And if it changes, that's really bad. And you know, most people are like, whoa, wonderful. You know, Twitter redesigned their website. And I could just imagine some people going, oh, no, <laughs> we're going to have to get right on this. <laughs> yeah, you know, so that's one of the problems you run into, right? The other one, which this one I didn't actually think about, but makes perfect sense for these global companies like Instagram and the other social media, is they can send you different languages. And so if you're like writing a query to say, go find the thing that says login and then you get German back, it's not going to say login usually, right? Anmelden or whatever it's going to say, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like you described. It's all the time it was like, oh, no, they changed something again. And for example, with the language part, you can actually force Chrome to use a specific, specific language. So this was kind of the first things we introduced to make sure that we don't have a big problem with, with the languages at all, because searching a button for its text is pretty pretty nice and they won't change the English text in a lot of cases because it's just like default or standardly described. And then we can set the language of the browser to English from the beginning and this will help us find elements that won't break that fast. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I definitely learned about the setting the preferred language in your browser when I moved to Germany. So that was... <laughs> I could be a little German, but I, I can't do my, all my web work on German. My, it's just not, it wasn't that good. So yeah, all right. So those are some of the problems. Uh, one thing that Selenium has that's pretty cool is something called the page object pattern that takes away a lot of those issues, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so tell us about the page object. Pattern is it's actually just another design pattern that was in kind of introduced by Selenium itself. So in the page object pattern, you just assign each page a separate object so it's a little bit of an object-oriented approach to this whole web automation thing. And for example, if we take the login page again and you build a page object pattern, you build a page object of that login page, then you will just focus on the important parts there. So for example, we again have the user name field. We again have the password field. We have the login button. And for example, we have a dropdown for languages or the sign up button and then you will just assign each of the fields of that object will be x path to one of the elements on the page itself yeah that's cool but it knows okay i've detected it in the html that way so it's not like it's going to vary so much you just have the end end result that you're after like the user username or something and 
on this page object object it's kind of meta <laughs> the things like text boxes and stuff those are the attributes and you could interact with them that way right and the, what do the buttons become functions you still have the buttons as fields there but you also create methods or functions for the buttons itself for example you will have a login function that just triggers the click on the login button itself just so you have a really nice abstraction over the more complex structure which you can call really easily and therefore you will get a really nice api layer that sounds really really nice you solve so many problems you solve the page structure changing um you solve having to worry about actually what the xpath queries are you know, you solve the language problem. It sounds really, really nice to have <laughs> have this page object. All right, this is just, everything we've talked about so far is just Selenium. And anybody who wants to automate basically anything on the web using Python, they could just leverage this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So you took this and said, all right, well, let's build kind of a, some, a wrapper around or on top of this concept and really focus it on Instagram. And you called it Instapy, right? Yeah, Instapy is a kind of a, you probably have guessed it. It's it's a combination of Instagram and Python. So it's not too straightforward. It's a really great little, uh, <laughs> uh, little phrase. So tell us, you know, what it is. How does it sort of add value to this whole chain? Instapy actually is just another layer on top of this whole abstraction we already already have with Selenium and this page object pattern. And with Instapy, you can build your own bot actually. So you have different methods like, for example, all right, I want to like, I want to comment, I want to interact with the followers of a special page. I want to follow these people. And now you can really set up and really define the bot, how it should act for you. So it's not a one solution that fits for everyone, but you can really define it on your own and how you want it to work for yourself. That's really cool. And it has so many sort of Instagram focused things that you can do. Before we get into the details though, where did it come from? Why did you create this thing? Were you trying to like beat your friends on Instagram and you're like, I'm going to have more followers by the end of the week, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. The idea actually originated when I started learning Python. And there is this great book called Automating the Boring Stuff from Al Swigert. Yeah, Al's great. That book is just awesome. And there is one chapter about automating stuff with Selenium. And he has this, in my opinion, little bit boring task of, of filling out the online form. And it's really, it's a good example in terms of how what you can use Selenium for. But I thought it would be nicer to have something more interesting, at least for me. And so I started playing around with Instagram a little bit and I kind of realized that just liking random stuff worked out pretty cool. There was a journalist who, this was Facebook, not Instagram, who went and actually as an experiment liked everything that was on his Facebook feed, whether it was like really left-wing or right-wing, offensive, funny, whatever, just liked everything. And it's, he said it destroyed his account after a week. <laughs> I don't think Instagram is so contentious as somewhere like Facebook, though. Yeah, there's there's one one similar problem. If you like to or if you follow too many people, then your newsfeed. A lot of people just care about their newsfeed of posts that friends, for example, post. And if you follow a lot of people and you reach the ten thousand people that are is it the cap for the amount of people you can follow, then your feed will get really messy and you won't find anything there and have to probably have a lot of trash in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's tough when you have too many people. You kind of lose your friends among all the yeah. folks you're trying to follow. This portion of Talk Python to Me was brought to you by GoCD. GoCD is an on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery tool to help you get better visibility into and control of your team's deployments. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for multiple teams with ease. And GoCD's value stream map lets you track changes from commit to deploy at a glance. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. We all know that continuous integration is super important to the code quality of your applications. Choose the open source local CI server, GoCD. Learn more at talkpython.fm slash GoCD. That's talkpython.fm slash G-O-C-D. There's a couple of things that you can do there. For example, if I wanted to go and find Instagram posts that were related to some particular thing, and you can check that they're not your friends and that they don't have any, you know, not safe for work sort of 
messages. So there's, there's kind of a, a fairly complex set of rules that you can use to work through your Instagram feed and interact with those through Python, right? Yeah, exactly. So we have a lot of distinct features already that kind of help you really make sure that you don't like or comment or follow people that you really don't want to follow. And there's, for example, this, this feature where you can just define a list of tags, a list of words that should not appear in the description of the post you want to like. So for example, if you kind of right-winged, then there is a post that has some left-winged comments or left-winged tags, left-winged descriptions in there, then and you really don't want to follow them or interact with that post, you can make sure that the bot won't follow that one or won't interact with that post, specific post. You can also just, as example, I had one actor and he wanted to interact with the followers of one of his co-actors because he knew that the people that follow his co-actor most likely will also follow him. So he wanted a feature where he can interact with the followers of his coworker, and it worked out great. We developed it and it, he really liked the feature. That sounds like a really good idea for basically anyone who has some competition or collaboration type of person, right? Let's say I, I'm General Motors and I want to capture some of the people from Porsche who like Porsche. I could just go and follow everyone who likes Porsche or Mercedes or whatever. And there's a good chance those people are into cars and they might follow me back. I could, you know, show some Corvette thing to them or something. Who knows, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I wasn't aware of that kind of tactic until that guy pointed out. But in the end or in the later run, I really realized that it's kind of a really core features that a lot of people use right now because it's just it's just really powerful. Yeah, that's a great idea. My mind's going on things I can do around, around <laughs> that. <laughs> but with this, you can even make it automatic, right? Then, And like I said at the beginning, I think it's really important to not just follow somebody. You know, I don't think that really is a strong signal that that person wants to interact with you or that account cares about you, but but having some kind of interaction, right? So in addition to, say, following, you can like somebody's post, you can actually comment on their post and things like that, right? It even kind of randomizes it, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. For example, you if you found the, found the users you want to follow from that other guy's account, you can also set the bot to make sure that the bot goes to the account of that person. And then it, for example, interacts with five random posts he posted in the last several weeks. And then, for example, you say that on two of these posts, you actually want to comment something and you want to follow the account as well, or you want to like even more posts. That's pretty interesting. It's really fun to just kind of dream about like automating social media interactions at that level, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting for a lot of people because it, it's just because it's it's this it's this toolbox. It's really this just modular toolbox. You kind of kind of can imagine it like Lego pieces. You can st just stack together however you want to. So it really fits your needs and maybe it's only your needs and then you can really fit it to your specific use case. Yeah, I did a sort of a look back in the year, back uh, last New Year's on the data science world with Jonathan Morgan from Partially Derivative. And one of the things that came out of there and is, you know, makes a lot of sense after, you know, looking back on it these days is there on Twitter, there were so many bots. And when it got to the, the political debates and conversations, it was some insane number, like many percent of the characters on Twitter interacting on these political debates were bots on both sides. And what would happen is periodically one bot would get into an argument with another one. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, you know, like a left wing bot would fight with a right wing bot. It's like, just, you know, just stop. So it's, it's pretty wild. <laughs> All right. So I guess maybe one of the things that is worth covering now is maybe what are the limitations? Like when, when does it make sense to use Instapy? When should you not? What are the drawbacks of it? A few of the drawbacks are that if you're really active yourself on Instagram, for example, then the bot probably m might not make any sense because you only have a predefined number of interactions you can do per day. And this is limited by Instagram, of course, because if they detect some malicious interaction, they will make sure that they block these features. And since they have this 
really nice microservice architecture, they can just block you from liking. So for example, if you go overboard with liking a lot of pictures, they will just make sure that you're not able to like any pictures for the next 24 hours. It's the same with commenting and following. So they're really defined in what they turn off for your account. That's pretty interesting. That is really interesting that they're very fine-grained rather than just, you've been too busy, go away. Yeah, exactly. That's It's pretty nice. And another maybe another drawback of Instapy itself is that even though it's kind of automated right now, as it is right now, you still have to make sure that you take a look at it every now and then and that you don't let it carry away because in some cases there can be problems with commenting as well if you did not define everything as close as possible. So for example, a while ago I had a guy that accidentally commented on a post of someone that had uh, an illness which was pretty serious and and of course he only set up the basic comments like awesome super cool and wow this is so (laughs) nice and yeah and so so one of his bot just commented wow this is super nice on on the bottom of this post so terrible (laughs) yeah and it's so wrong in many many levels but yeah you got you got to be really careful about that kind of stuff right it's still just a just a script it's it there's no ai behind it so it's not intelligent it's not smart it just does whatever you tell it to do it probably could have an ai behind it though right like that could be a feature that somebody plugs in some kind of machine learning nltk type thing and tries to do sentiment analysis and tries to make a meaningful statement yeah that's a totally valid point here and we have some in later on we implemented some some image analysis with the Clarify API. And these guys are really good at making sense of pictures. So we use it to take the post's picture and let it run through the API. And if we get some special type of tags back, for example, not safe for work or anything, then we just make sure that you won't comment it. I mean, you can totally predefine it for yourself. So for example, you say, I don't want to like any pictures of pizza. And then you just say, yeah, sure. Whenever the API detects there is pizza in the picture, don't like that picture. Yeah, we're a taco shop. We don't want pizza. We want only tacos and burritos. Come on, that's what we like. Yeah, That's pretty interesting. How long does it take for that API to run? Like given a picture, how quickly do you get an answer back? That's a good question, but it's super fast. So if you do that query in your, for example, in your terminal, because they just have this super simple API, then it, it's probably just a second or so until you get the response back. But that's not a point with Instapy because Instapy in general more works like a, a slow tool because if you go too fast, Instagram, like I said, will block you off. And so we have this predefined kind of wait times in there that, for example, delays a, a second like for like three seconds. So this API call isn't really a problem here. If it takes a little bit more time, nobody cares because it's just kind of a random factor that will make your bot a little bit less likely to be detected. So let's see, what advice would you give to companies that are thinking of doing this kind of stuff? Has it worked out well for people or they, I feel like it's still the best thing probably is to have a true natural interactions, but maybe, you know, some combination. Yeah, exactly. So it's super important that you don't only, especially if you're a little business or a small shop, it's super important that you don't just set it up and let it go wild out there because you will maybe even fend off your customers, your actual customers. But it's really interesting to search for new customers or interact with people that might be interested in your in your shop, in your product, in your food, for example. And we have a feature that is called like by location. So you can actually set your own location as a as a center point and do some area around it. So you will only interact with people that have posted something close to you. So you know that these people are either in the area or that the people were in this area and might come back. Wow, that sounds actually really valuable. That's awesome. What do you think about the ethical side of these things? Like this can let businesses have richer interactions with their customers, but it also, I can see how it could be abused. It's always a very hard decision to make and very hard decisions to make in the long run because there are so many things that can be abused and so many things that can be used to not only help your 
business, but also kind of destroy your business, even you're, though you're not aware of it, because you, of course, there's no, not always someone that takes care of the whole bot itself and checks every comment twice before it gets posted. But if you see it in the other way, there are a lot of profiles out there and a lot of people out there that are these influencers. And these people often are just people that have a lot of money. They sometimes don't even have good content. And the difference between people that have good content and are famous and people that have good content and are not famous on Instagram, it's really just a small, small gap because maybe the people that have that are famous have more had more followers in the beginning or they they started earlier. And so we what I think Instapie is is really good for and what Instapie really does good is that it kind of makes people equal let's say they it makes people equal on a social level so for example if you have good content then it does not matter if you have a lot of money so you can buy yourself 10,000 followers on Instagram or 10,000 likes per picture it does make any difference because if you use the bot for free and you have a lot of bad pictures or you use the bot for free and you have good pictures of course the person with the good pictures and the nice content will be preferred by the people he interacts with them with for himself and it's kind of the difference because we take that that money aspect that that kind of really in my opinion destroys this whole system we take that out of the loop and make sure that people can become influencers even though they don't invest that much time and money into growing their social accounts. That's an interesting way to look at it, right? Just because people, somebody is a celebrity doesn't mean that they necessarily have better content. Absolutely, yeah. Right, but they definitely have a head start on, on attracting people. Yeah. So let's talk about the community around Instapie a little bit. It's actually really popular. You have almost 3,000 stars on GitHub, 700 forks. Let's see, 72 contributors. This has become quite the project. And I'm so glad that it grew so big and that so many people are interested in it because like we talked about it in the beginning, this kind of adjustments to the XPaths, for example, are really time consuming and, and are a little bit annoying. But if there are a lot of people working on it, like they do right now, which is just awesome, it gets a lot easier and everyone has fewer work and they really help not only grow the tool itself, but also just make sure that people are able to use it, still use it, and are glad about it. There is this one guy, he's called Joao, and he's at Converge on GitHub. And I'm super glad that he's this guy is so involved in the project because he helped me out so many times, especially since I'm now working full-time and it's pretty hard to do a lot of open source work in my free time right now. So he's always there and he's probably way smarter than I am and he's just super active and helps out and there are a lot of people like him and it's it's so, so interesting and so nice to see a community building around this tool that not only uses the tool but they really it's self-contained already so if I don't do any interaction anymore the tool won't die it's just the people help each other, the people communicate with each other. They even build a Slack channel without me being in, really involved. And they kind of <laughs> are totally active there. It's close to 150 people that are on the Slack channel. And it's it's just so amazing to see and, and to hear about all these progress people make with Instapy and all these emails I get about how they use Instapy and th that they thank me for building it, even though I kind of built the initial tool and I kind of built this this idea of pushing it open source to make everyone able to access it. But in the end, it turns out that the community is way better in improving that script and improving the publicity of it. And this really, I'm th so thankful for that community because it makes the tool way more attractive and it keeps me in the project myself because sometimes I thought about quitting, especially after I got some less nice emails from people there was one guy from africa from south africa he he's doing a social automation as kind of a way to finance his master's degree and he wrote me that i should take down the project because it keeps him from getting more customers or from from getting more clients that pay for pay him to do their automation with which he pays his bachelor's degree with so i kind of had some points where i thought about mm, maybe i should stop supporting that project but this community really 
speaks for itself. It's definitely got a life of its own, right? There's 711 copies on different repos already. So that's pretty cool. And yeah, I'm looking at the GitHub repository now and Converge is the last commit two days ago. So yeah, he's definitely very active. That's that's pretty awesome. Absolutely. I really love this guy. <laughs> that's awesome. So shout out to him. Very cool. One of the things I like to ask or people who have projects like this is I know a lot of my listeners are wanting to get into open source and they want to contribute, but it's it's really easy to go, I want to contribute to requests. I want to contribute to Django or whatever. And these are such finely polished, highly used, <laughs> you know, not necessarily physically large, but large in complexity and dependencies types of applications that it's really hard for someone trying to get into it to go, yeah, I'm going to add a major revision to Django <laughs> in some way, right? Like you've got to live and breathe that stuff. So, you know, this seems like, a, you know, there's 162 issues. It seems like there's a, a lot of room for other people to come in and, and play around with this. What do you think? Can people come get involved? There are so many interesting stories and so many nice stories about people that write me emails because they started getting into Python because of the project. They saw this one issue and these issues are not big problems or not big kind of improvements, but there are small things that went wrong that were developed wrong or that had some kind of bug in it. And so people start digging into the code and, and thinking about how they could solve it. And then they fork the project, they play around with it on their local machines and at some point, they, of course, find the problem because all of these problems are not that big of problems. You don't need to write a ton of tests for it. You don't need to really write a ton of code for it. And it's super easy to contribute. And that's probably one of the reasons why there are already so many contributors, because it's just fun, it's easy, and you can help a lot of people. There will be a ton of people that are thankful for you fixing that bug in that tool. It's just great. Yeah, that's really, really cool. So it does seem like a project that's kind of the right size for getting involved in open source. It's not massive, but it's also not a toy project, right? It's kind of fairly approachable. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's one of these medium-sized projects that got some attention, but not too much to be really heavily developed by a core team, but it's all open source and it's all contributors. Yeah, excellent. So another thing that you talked about when you were at EuroPython that I thought was pretty powerful was the effect that working on open source has had on your career, at least on the software side. I don't know about the art side. <laughs> Maybe speak to that a little bit and share share your story there. Uh, sorry, in terms of art or? No, no, no. Like just, you know, you said how you laid out like a couple of things that changed because you contributed to open source. So like you got like requests for internships, job offers, all sorts of cool stuff that happened by just creating this project, for example. This got really crazy. In the beginning, it were just people asking me to, to join their teams and to interview with them. And when I started putting a note on the bottom of my article about Instapy, people really contacted me that since I want an internship, don't you want to come over to Iceland? Don't you want to come over to Australia, to Japan, to Brazil, to the United States? It was just completely all over the world. People from all over the world wrote me in mails that I that there would be interesting in having me in their team and it's just so crazy and I got the talk at Europython because of that project I now got another talk at the DevFest in Mountain View about that kind of topics and well I'm sitting here right now and talking to you yeah that's right it's pretty amazing I I think you are in just such a different position when people come to you and they're like, we want to work with you. And here's the opera. Here's what we can do to make that amazing. As opposed to you writing, you know, going to the contact us form on a hundred random companies and saying, I promise I'm good. I want to come work with you, right? It's not even the same type of thing, right? Yeah. And if they see that you have a good GitHub profile, of course, recruiters and any type of people that search for other people that have some experience, of course, they will look at your GitHub profile because it's just, it's just kind of the social profile of a developer. It really is. And one of the things that I think is interesting about GitHub is it's super hard to fake your commit timelines, right? Like if, if you've got five repositories, but they all appeared 10 days ago, <laughs> like that, it's like, well, maybe they just put that here for 
this interview or because they now want a job. But if it's been there for two years and there's like lots of green bars and on the little commit, I don't know what you call that, a streak or whatever they have at the bottom, right? That that's definitely a very strong signal. So I think that's cool. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's just crazy what a nice presence, a nice open presence as a developer can give you, and and how much value is in this kind of portfolio. It's it's just crazy. Yeah, I was talking a while ago with someone, I can't remember which episode, but if you start your own project, that's one thing. But if, if you contribute to other people's projects, at a lot of these Python meetups, there's the sprints that are after, right? So if you go and contribute to Instapy, maybe there's an Instapy sprint and you can work with some of the other developers there, or you contribute to Flask, you can go work with the core developers of Flask. And that can really create connections that are quite valuable in the developer space that you wouldn't just get normally, right? You can sit down with the the core team and actually work on some product. And so next time you're interviewing, they're like, oh, I see you've talked about Flask. And so why would you do this? Like, well, here, when we wrote it internally, this is what it did. And that's why you do it this way. Okay, you're hired. <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? Like, this, like, that's a really interesting and not super hard thing to do, right? Like, if you go to these sprints and sit down, like, you can sit with a really experienced person and, and level up that way. This is also one thing I love about open source is that you, if you want to contribute, you have to dig into their code. You have to understand their architecture. You have to understand how they write their code, their style guides, and their kind of relations between classes, for example. Then this will just make you so much better developer it's it's insane it's really wonderful you can definitely absorb a lot of that years of experience especially if you're new awesome all right well tim i think we're just about out of time we have to leave it there uh, for instapy but it sounds like a fun project and uh, also one people can get involved with so before you go though i have two questions for you the two questions first of all if you're working on instapy what editor do you open up if i work on instapy it's definitely pyjarm and if i get into some more data sciencey stuff and create some metrics and this kind of get some insights into Instapy, then I will use uh, Spider. Okay, yeah, those are really cool. People haven't mentioned Spider very much, but it comes with the Anaconda distribution and it's kind of the data science equivalent of PyCharm, I guess, maybe is the way to think of it, right? That's probably why it's two editors, but they're kind of the same. They're kind of uh, parallel, but different. That's cool. All right, and uh, notable PyPI package. I'll go ahead and throw out pip install Instapy for you. <laughs> what other one? Sadly, Instapy isn't on PyPI. Oh, is it not? No, it's it's not by now it's not because we have some or we didn't investigate it in too much into it in terms of we have to use this chrome driver right now and this chrome driver has to be added in later on because it's depending on the system and so we have to we're not yet ready to push it on PyPI, but it's one of the next things we will definitely do and then of course it will be pip install instapy actually was thinking about that's got to be a pretty massive download to to take the different uh, platforms of chrome with it and stuff like that right so yeah okay cool all right so uh, other notable PyPI package of course selenium because i just really really like it and it's so handy and i'll go with requests because right now we are switching over or we try to switch over to requests for some of the data gathering because we lately I've been kind of reverse engineering the Instagram GraphQL API and they have some really neat endpoints there that you can leverage to get all the information without doing a lot of work. And so we are going for requests. We are using requests as well now. Okay, yeah, nice combination. And it's interesting that you have the, the two there. Cool. All right. So final call to action. People are interested in Instapy. What do they do? How do they get started? First of all, just go to GitHub and, and search for Instapy. You will definitely find it. It's the biggest Instagram bot on GitHub right now. There are several others, but none of them is as popular as Instapy. So just go there, check it out, fork it, clone it, try it out. And if you're interested, if you have some ideas, just post it as an issue or get into your or get into it yourself and just check out the issues, check what problems people have and try to fix them. It's super easy and you will be one of the core contributors of Instapy, which is also nice. Yeah, that's really awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing your project with us. That was uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, thanks for being here. It was really amazing. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Thank you. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. 
Today's guest has been Tim Grossman, and this episode has been brought to you by Linode and GoCD. Linode is bulletproof hosting for whatever you're building with Python. Get your four months free at talkpython.fm slash Linode. Just use the code Python17. GoCD is the on-premise open source continuous delivery server. Want to improve your deployment workflow, but keep your code and builds in-house? Check out GoCD at talkpython.fm slash GOCD and take control over your process. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps at talkpython.fm slash course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic Code course at talkpython.fm slash pythonic. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. Music.